0: Well, our studies during our evening services in this portion of Psalms brings us tonight to Psalm 71. And there's always a degree of artificiality when you make a break in a psalm, which is meant actually to be read in one piece, but for the sake of trying to do justice to the great themes that are there, right? It would take many sermons, wouldn't it, to do justice to these wonderful words, and the the title, well, one often struggles for a title to try to capture what is there and to bring some, as it were, focus upon these wonderful high words. But the title is this, God, a reliable friend, God, a reliable friend. There could have been many titles that uh, I could have chosen, I'm sure, for this portion of scripture that we're looking at tonight. And as we have been studying in this series of psalms here. Some of the themes are familiar ones, so some subjects which very readily uh, lend themselves uh, for attention. I'm uh, kind of not particularly dwelling upon as we've considered those in earlier sermons. But here we have, well, we imagine a psalm of David and one in which he writes in old age, as he refers to it in verse 9. And in verse 18, he's got things to say about his youth as he surveys his life to date. And well, next week, we'll look a little bit more about what, he, what he's experiencing, what we experience perhaps uh, in old age. We imagine maybe this was during the time of Absalom's rebellion, and the great difficulties and hardship that that was for him to see his son rising up against him, wanting to take the kingdom, wanting actually to take his life. And so we may be in that territory when we consider these things here. But as I mentioned, there are familiar themes to us. And uh, some of those familiar themes are going to really form the, the basis of what I'm going to bring this evening. Themes that are at times neglected themes in our own worship and our own deliberations. And so I bring us to our first heading tonight, The Enemies Again, The Enemies Again, we've seen them in previous Psalms, Psalm 70, and previous to that, Psalm 69, Psalm 68. Enemies, and we have them referred to again and again, the wicked, verse 4. The unrighteous, the cruel, again in verse 4. Enemies by name in verse 10. Adversaries, well those are enemies again in verse 13. What are they doing? Well, they're murderers. Verse 10, they're lying in wait. Verse 24, their intentions are not good. They mean to do harm to David. And these are themes that are not unique to this psalm, but are found in many, many places in the psalms. And this is not that David is an advanced state of paranoia. Well, there are people who are paranoid. There are people who have been gripped by fear and still are gripped by fear by many, many things. But in David, there is always reality. That we see in him, well, again and again we've looked, haven't we, there and seen that he is a type of Christ. He is representing in his person, in his works, in his origins, in his life's experiences, things that would have a greater fulfillment in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. but In a way, too, he is also a type of the believer, the follower of God. He was, wasn't he? He was a man after God's own heart. There was a particularity about him. There was something of his whole soul's engagement with his God, the way he speaks to him and of him. It's unmistakable. It's here in the Psalms. We we, we catch, as it were, something of his spiritual life and realize that we are seeing in him something that we should be experiencing too. And his intensity of experience, when in a way there, we, we see him as a, the type of the believer and his insights and what he understands about his surroundings. This is all very instructive to us. He is was like a worked example in the strength and the intensity of what he feels and the burdens that he has. And while we sometimes may feel ourselves a little remote from what it is that he is feeling and experiencing and realize that we're out of our depth, really, in the terms of the spiritual life of David, for all his faults and for all of his own weaknesses, which the scripture is not coy about, but writes about very openly. But this is something that he very keenly feels because he realizes it, that these enemies are not of his own imagination, that it not an advanced state of paranoia, as mentioned. But this is a reality. This is the world. This is where he was. And friends, nothing has changed in that way. It's our world too. It's the culture that we are in. And its enmity against us is, is nothing new. And it may be more polite in some ways and at some times, though I think it's becoming less polite as years move on. And it is our surrounding. That's our environment. And we've often had sermons that have looked at that. I think fairly recently we had one, In the Midst of Foes, and could just as easily have titled this sermon, In the Midst of Foes. So that's where David was, knew it, recognized it wasn't exaggerating in the language that he uses. And it's the world that we need to cotton onto to quickly. But that's actually what it is about. But of course, it's not just that, that it's just the enemies and we're just focused there. Because of course, everything that David said is full of faith and trust. That at every point, he is making his situation then a matter for urgent prayer. And we need to underline urgent prayer. This is not lackadaisical, not not casual, unfelt, unmeant, just habitual and routine. This is urgent. These are vehement cries. We know our great David's greater son is going to there cry out to his heavenly father. We had the prayer there in John chapter 17. And a different prayer again in the Garden of Gethsemane was going to follow soon after it. Vehement cries, sobs indeed. There's an urgency, isn't there? And there is David, the type of the believer, the ideal of what we should be. There he is in you, O Lord. I put my trust. That's what he did daily. All the dangers amidst all the adversaries and those who were seeking to murder him, looking to lay snares and traps for him. It is God whom he looks to. He prays, doesn't he, deliver me in your righteousness in verse 2 and cause me to escape, incline your ear to me and save me, be my strong refuge. He's not praying here of matters that he's had no experience of. It's because he has had experience of these matters and God's dealings with him. That out of the fullness of that experience, then he prays vehemently and urgently and with faith that God could help him. In these new dangers and these new trials, and with these new adversaries that he is meeting with, the Bible is not ashamed to be at times very negative, very negative in what it handles the themes that it puts before us. Not that it, as I have said, is a negative book everywhere there is David, a man of faith, there are his praises mingled with his cries and his evaluation of his situation as he brings it all to God. But the Bible is ready to tell us it, as they say, as it is. Unvarnished truth, realities. It's there to warn sinners. Realities, no comfort here, none to be found. Realities, there is judgment to come, that judgment is not sleeping. It will meet with us one day. Don't stay with your sin. You will perish with your sin. Don't remain complacent and content because you will not be complacent and content in hell. No complacency and contentment there. But it is a horrible awakening to missed opportunities, failures to believe, failures to act upon the warnings of God. But also as believers that we are to be conversant with and be able to handle where the scriptures point out to us that what we're surrounded by and the world at large, that it is full of enmity. And it may be very pleasant and we may be very comfortable in many ways and we're very glad of the freedoms that as a nation we have enjoyed. Maybe we won't be enjoying them so much if some people have their way on into the future. Yes, because we need to be fully awake are not in some sort of soothing, comforting frame of mind. That uh, We just look on the world there in a kind of paternalistic, benevolent way. Because that's not the world of the Bible. That's not the world of Bible realism. That is the world that the Lord full well knew when he prayed in John 17. I haven't time to give proper attention to these things here, but the world that these disciples of his were called out of the world. And he's not praying for that world of enmity, but for his people, for this world actually hates his people. And he refers to that, doesn't he? That as they hated me, they will be hated too. And that's the apostles, but that comes devolving down to us as well. The Bible tells us these things. It tells us more than these things, but it tells us these negative things. Evaluate the world rightly. Get a right estimate of it. It does not have goodwill for the gospel. And even though it may have a measure of indifference and we're not attacked in the streets, we came back from Belpa there and are unscathed in that way, not Blooded and beaten, not had things hurled at us. And well, we're thankful perhaps that we're not having to experience what others have had to experience who've been out open air preaching. But for all of that, we wouldn't have had to work too hard to find actually some very aggressive thoughts and the voicing of those thoughts that if we were to probe the politeness and, and ask some more difficult questions, surely in many, many cases, we would have had some quite strong and quite angry responses back. Because there is that enmity in the heart of man, it feeds into a culture, feeds into its writings and its broadcastings, and then comes down raining upon our heads. How one looks back at the the church in the West over, what are we saying, 50 years, more than that even. And how at times it has been so Naive. So triumphalistic. And thinking that we were on the verge of some great happening that was going to transform the whole of society. Why? Well, signs and wonders were going to do it and incredible happenings. And those have been promised and promised and promised again. And the church, many of its quarters, many of its places has, has put trust in those things. Not worked out. But actually culture is in decline. And the enmity is growing, and that far from just reckoning that with the next prophecy it's all going to change, and what's there to worry about? There's much to be concerned about, and that the church missed many a moments to be before God in prayer over the state of the church, over the state of our society, over the way in which things around us were coarsening, and the hatred was becoming more vicious and expressed and the books and all of the caustic things that are written against the christian doctrines that was happening and the church wasn't preparing people for it this sort of upbeat uh, picture this this sense of uh well something's wonderful is going to happen very soon and it was false all those prophecies there we have to say well, they were false indeed i just heard of another one recently incredible but uh that's quite a big name in America in the charismatic circles and had some strange dream or rather a friend of his did. And from it, he interpreted that arising rising out of Black Lives Matter, uh, that movement, which has Marxism at its core and whose founders uh, are actually social revolutionaries. But that somehow out of that, uh, there was going to come a, a revival going to happen in black culture and was going to affect everybody that was going to come. Well, the years have passed and here we are and there's no sign of that in the United States. And well, we know it as we look on the news there. But this revivalistic, this triumphalistic kind of message they once whenever anything difficult comes to dampen it down and let's soothe ourselves with some some other hope there. False positives, lights at the end of the tunnel, and yet they were false promises. And that isn't to make us depressed, and that's not to speak with lack of faith. That is actually the rational response to what we live among by way of the world and its enmity against the church. It's against David. Is is what he reflects upon there, his, the enemies that are against him, his adversaries. Cruel they are. Many of them today are showing their cruelty, given their moment. Well, what, horrible things come pouring out from them? What dreadful imprecations that they speak against people? No, it's actually a rational, spiritual response to conclude. There's enmity. There is hatred, real hatred. Friends, we get accused there, don't we, of hate speech? But I think we can say, well, we don't always speak at our best, it's true. But I can say the hate is all out there. That's where the hate speech is. That's where the hatred is being fostered in the heart. It may be that people flatter themselves when they hate and tend to kind of justify it in all kind of extraordinary ways. But that is what is out there. Perhaps it is that we've lived in times of relative peace, and material comfort, and we failed as often to see quite how fierce that opposition was and to reckon on it, and then to take it as a matter of urgent prayer. That the lack of urgency in our assessment has robbed us of the urgency which David most certainly did have when he prayed to God, "You, knew I put my trust, deliver me. Now we need deliverance in this day and in this age. Deliver me out of the hand of the wicked, in verse 4, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. And he describes himself, and we might also put ourselves there. We become as a wonder to many. And it's not that they're looking amazement and admiration. They're just amazed. But you still believe the Bible. You believe in creation. You believe in life after death. And we assure them we must certainly do. And they'd be wise if they did too. But many of them still scoff at these things and just regard us as a wonder. Astonishing! Still, people like you around today. So we have our work there, and we are to make that an urgent matter of prayer. That's what David did. He didn't just sort of sink with it. He didn't just uh, sit there uh, in a kind of negative way, just talking to his trusted advisers about it and not making it a matter of urgent prayer. You no, know, he prayed again and again. Man of prayer, he prayed. And so should we. And indeed, the more that we absorb and understand the severity, whereas a culture here in the West we find ourselves are our, ourselves are uh, fully woke, you might say, from the way in which the world means it. But because we we're awake now, we're seeing what's happening, and we're realizing we're we're joining up the dots on it. Because you can see in verse ten that they they take or uh, well, they take counsel together. This is most extraordinary alliances which happen. Coalitions of really not like-minded people, but who find a sufficient common cause in their enmity against the Christian faith. And we we see these things happening. And they rather don't think that we'll be helped. Verse 11, that's, well, the government's not going to help us, they reckon, because we've got the government in our pocket. The stone wall there sort of dictates the terms and conditions. There may be something of that now is being rowed back but they'd rather think that we've got no help. Prayer, what's that going to do, they might say. These defenceless people there are for the taking, and there are many who are fancying their chances in these days. And Of course, we have to reckon as well beyond the faces, beyond the the people that we can name, the organisations that we can name, that there is a malign spiritual person behind these things. Friends, we can't promise ourselves here a trouble-free journey unmolested by the devil. But the devil himself is interested in churches of all sizes. You don't have to reach a particular threshold. A bit like the tax man, he gets interested in you when your turnover is over a certain amount. No, the devil doesn't wait for us to get to a certain size before he introduces trouble in any church. Small churches, wherever the truth is, proclaim churches that there his interest is aroused. And we can just quote a few of the fairly familiar scriptures to us in in that particular regard. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, speaking of where we all once were. But it says, in those trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit now works in the sons of disobedience. That enmity and that hatred and that willingness to oppose and persecute, that you trace it beyond the personalities. They don't know what they're doing. They don't really know who it is they're serving. They believe not in God and they don't believe in the devil either, even though actually they are performing his will and it is that spirit there that is at work in the sons of disobedience. Or Ephesians chapter 6, and uh, familiar verses again, just to read verses 10 to 12. Find me, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do you not marvel sometimes at the absurd things that people will espouse and the claims that they will make, the, the absurdity of so much of it? And you realize this, this irrationality, that this there's something more to this. And there we read of it. What are we bumping up against here? Well, actually, within all of this, principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places, well, they're barely qualified to go beyond what Scripture has written in that. But there is Scripture, and it's writing to us that that is actually what we're up against. That is what's happening. That's what's got this animating power. And that's why this irrationality and people insisting in the most unreasonable ways, the most extraordinary of things, the most ridiculous and absurd of things, and there is behind it, a power that's at work, blinding their minds, making them quite sort of almost insensible to the fact that they're talking utter absurdities. So we see that there is that spiritual force, that power, why that person, because that's who it is. It's, It's a spiritual being and it is the devil. And he is sadly at work in that world and in the enemies of the church. There it is. God has told us, there's the terrain. We go to him and pray. But then there's the title of this sermon. And so my second heading is God is a friend to us. David had found, and that's just trying to capture some of these great descriptions that he uses, what God is to him. God has proved himself to be to him a friend. And it's not that he's going to just sort of pluck us out of the trouble. Oh, it's as though we were talking after the open air coffee yesterday about uh, you know, secret raptures and these things. No, no, we're not looking for that. We're not expecting suddenly to believers just be raptured away, and then a whole set of extraordinary things then taking place. No, we believe in all of those things taking place before the second coming, before our Lord returns. One return, one coming, and uh, that'll be a glorious day. But we're not promised that we will be removed from this enmity. This was our Lord's uh, part of His great prayer in John 17, already referred to. And if I was just to read from verse 14 of that prayer again, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Isn't it interesting? But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Not that we should be suddenly removed, but that we should be protected. preserved, that whatever the devil intends, that none of it will come to anything. And Indeed, it will only be in God's sovereign purposes and in his hand, used to actually strengthen us. So all of the enmity, all of the hatred, just actually makes us wiser students of human nature, makes us to be more prayerful, stimulates us and urges us on in prayer and opens up to us further great discoveries of the the greatness of God and of his provisions for us, why, of his friendship towards us. And it's a friendship that he established in eternity, why, that's writ large in the prayer in John chapter 17, but it's where David reflects back in his old age and reflects back into his youth. You see, he's there. I've been upheld in verse 6 from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. But before we knew God, when actually we were enemies, he had friendly and kindly designs for his people in view. That his son carried those friendly and wise designs upon his heart. Knew us, knew us when he went to the cross. Knew whom he was dying for what his death would achieve for us, individuals, named people. And this was his intention. He came into the world as ignorant as any others, dead in trespasses and sins, just like all the others. We were just the same, Paul writes, doesn't he, at the beginning of Ephesians 2. But there was mercy always going to be working for us before we even knew him, but already was being as a friend to us, protecting us, stopping us when we might have rushed into something utterly self-destructive, preventing us from ruin, where all manner of our sins could have overcome us, completely submerged us. But God said no, and his restraining hand was upon us before we ever knew him. And so we look back, but we look at how since we knew him, since we became Christians again and again and again, he proved himself to be a strong refuge in verse 3, isn't it? And again, repeated there in verse 7, you are my strong refuge. And Again, we can amen that. We can say, yes, what a help he has been since we believed. How many a time, well, we were in the wrong place there. We were thinking the wrong thoughts, the wrong doctrines, we were in the wrong church maybe. And he helps us. He was a strong refuge for us. Maybe we thought our spiritual life was falling apart. We were just going to slip through the cracks and be gone. But it didn't happen. Because there he is, a reliable friend, proving to be again and again and again a strong refuge for his people. A rock, a fortress, a place of stability and security. While perhaps we might have been building on shaky foundations and even resting some of our spiritual hopes on rocky foundations. So he showed us better things, gave to us hope, as verse 5 tells us, there you are, my hope. Then maybe we couldn't see a way through. Maybe we couldn't understand what was happening to ourselves and the difficulties we were in, troubles we were facing. We prayed to him, and he was our hope, sustaining us, keeping us on track. Maybe when we felt in our souls that we're just ready to quit, Ready to drop it there, walk away, but we didn't. And he quickened us again and answered our prayers wonderfully. Oh, friends, we have a great friend. What a friend! As we sung, we have in Jesus, and in it we we we're, we're living in. I don't want to repeat what I was saying this morning, but we we're living in such an experience of life, life-changing life, not static, not something that just remains stale and. And uncreative in that way, but God is working in us, and fashioning something in us. And as individuals, He's He's working to bring to fruition His full plan, His sanctification of us. We learn about ourselves, and oh, we see that so much of that he actually we still harbour as Christians. That we can still bring unbelief to bear. We can still scoff and wonder, well. Where is God? I feel forsaken by Him, and we utter some of the most foolish, unbelieving of things, as Christians. But He works in us to uncover those things, to uncover the world that is still in us somewhere, and its attitudes, and its its unbelief, and its belittling of God. And even as Christians, we can have that about us. That's why often we don't pray as we should, because we don't believe anything will happen. We don't think that God is mighty to save, that he is a strong deliverer, that he can be a a rock and a refuge to us. And it speaks ill of us in that way. And then as David is able to reflect upon how he's been upheld from birth, all the the answered prayers, all the preservation, all the protection. And this he, he knows. He has a history of walking with the Lord. The closer we walk with him, the more we'll have to relate back to each other and then to relate to our circumstances and out of which we can pray for further help because it's not all finished and done. Prayer, answer, that's wonderful. A help given there. We're okay and on our way. You know, the AA turns up, they fix the car. That's great. Off you go. Hopefully we don't need the AA again for a long, long time. Not like that in the spiritual life. We get help. And we're going to need help just a little bit further along. You managed to get past Junction 28. Well, you'll need help again at Junction 27 and at Junction 26 and everywhere. And he was ready to give that help. And we discover more of him and we bring more of that into our prayer life than just as with David here. We're able to reflect upon that reason why we we trust. We put our trust in him and he causes us to escape again and again. And there is this too, that we do become wiser, wiser about the world that we're in. We've thought about this before in previous sermons, just to briefly allude to it again, but we see the wicked exposed. Wicked people expose themselves. They show their folly, their pride, and their arrogance. Out it comes. They can't help themselves. And we see, and we've we'll referred to it a fair few times, I think we'll be referring to it for many a while yet, but. The Supreme or the Court there in America, when it's declared that abortion is not a right within the Constitution, struck it down, and we've seen the results, haven't we? The shouting, the screaming, the horror in people's faces that such a thing could be done, and all of the the doom that is forecast there for women—they're not safe anymore anywhere. They've had their whole personhood trashed and destroyed. That even. Prince Harry there has joined in the whole thing and made a speech to the United Nations, likening the court's decision to the removing of democratic rights in Ukraine by Russia's invasion. So he's making an equivalence between the damage that Putin is doing in Ukraine to the damage that these judges ruled that this is not in the Constitution, abortion. And who made that ruling as if what they're doing is bringing the same sort of wreckage and damage as President Putin is extraordinary the irrationality of it the madness of it to equate that with that and yet that's what he's doing and we can think of prince harry there and i'm sure we can think many things of him you think of the experience that he must have had and the opportunities to learn places he's been places of danger don't belittle that he's been in some remarkably dangerous places out there in iraq wasn't he uh, until oh, Afghanistan was it, until it was uh, kind of leaked to the press and they had to bring him home for his own protections and be a marked man. And yet for all of that and all that privilege, it doesn't seem to have learnt very much because that's what happens. There isn't much there in the world. It hasn't got much wisdom and it'll, it'll disclose it. And people who may convey a sense of being the wisest of people suddenly do something incredibly foolish and are exposed for all that they are. We have a safe space to take the world's parlance there. A proper uh, safe space, so I can say the words. Just as with Abraham, looking at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah from safety. God had warned him what was to happen, and he knew, and Lot had been warned and, and recovered from that city. And we read in Genesis 19, and verse 28, and Abraham looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah, through all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And just before that in verse twenty seven, we learn from where he had seen that. He saw it going up in flames, saw the folly and the immorality what it was earning, were God's displeasure. But he did it in this place in the morning, when he went early, where he had stood before the Lord. A safe space, a safe place. We're removed from all of this horror unfolding in the world. And that's where we are, friends. We're in a safe place. That's where David was with his strong refuge. That's where he was with this help. And there's the enmity. And what's going to happen to it? Well, it's going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all going to be destroyed. It's going to be judged very, very emphatically. Sodom and Gomorrah, well, that is a worked example of where all the world's desires are going to end. Sodom, was at the the filthiest end of it, and there's how God dealt with it in, in history. But it's a warning. That's what God's going to do one day to all of this wickedness, whatever kind that it is, immorality, sexual immorality, all kinds. And up it goes in flames and everlasting burning. And we're safe. And we may review it and have to see it and be solemn in it, but that's, that's the destination. That's where it's all going for the world. We might have warned the world, and we might have pleaded with people, and they didn't listen. And there is then the judgment, and that's theirs to bear. And we will be those who, like Abraham, will survey it, but survey it from safety. That as he found that that fortress, and that rock, and that strong refuge, as David has found it, so we find it. We're not put to shame. It's the world that's put to shame. It's the Sodom's of this world that are put to shame. We may have to survey it and think upon it and think upon those souls that are perishing in it. But we, we have met with mercy. And out of that mercy, we pray. We're in the right place at the right time. We heard the right sermon, read the right Bible verse, sung the right hymn that had deep, deep impact upon it because it was all orchestrated by God. Small we might be, in verse 11, we're forsaken, they say. We can be pursued and taken, none to deliver him. Well, actually, no, there is our God. We're not forsaken, friends. Vulnerable and small, weak and needy, but very, very safe. And that eternal security, which is what our Savior promised us, promises us today and forevermore. So we have, friends, a reliable friend, In our Lord Jesus Christ, and may we rest all our hope, draw all our peace from him forevermore.